Turn, if you would, this morning to 1 Peter. For those of you that are visiting, we, we run through an entire book. Uh, this year, it's 1 Peter, and then we will start 2 Peter, Lord willing, in the days just right around the corner. I'm looking forward to that. We'll probably take a little break in between. I haven't quite figured out what. I, uh, I've, I've been nudged towards maybe two series, uh, uh, two series Sunday on heaven. Maybe, maybe that would be something that God would have us do. But just be praying about, uh, about that as we look into God's word. So glad to have you here today. This is God's word. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll be doing verses 1 through 5 today. May we hear the word of God this morning. Look carefully, if you would, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. Let us be careful on how we hear it this morning. In 2002, I believe, John Piper wrote a book that really got my attention. It was a book to pastors, and it was called this, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And the reason why it caused such a stir was that John Piper was going directly against some of the contemporary models of pastoring and, for, or, or, and, pastoring and for, for having churches, and that is a business model. A model that sees the church just as another business, peddling products and services. And the pastor as a professional, as one who's a salesman, as it were, in that organization. And John Piper pointed out that the objectives of a ministry are not the same as those in the business world. And that because we've adopted those practices of the business world, we are actually killing the church and replacing it with a baptized version of the world. And in his book, he wrote this, quote, The aims of our ministry are eternal and spiritual. They're not shared by any of the aims of our ministry, and our, or excuse me, of our professions. It is precisely by the failure to see this that churches are dying. And then he concluded, quote, The more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. John Piper is not the first person to recognize the profound impact that shepherds or leaders of God's people could have on the church. The wrong shepherds following the wrong model instead of leading people to eternal life will perpetuate spiritual death. I'm constantly aware of the spiritual apathy that often takes place in a church like ours. I'm very fearful that we can kind of yawn through our worship of God, kind of just go through the motions, walk out of here not really being changed by the Word of God. It's a very challenging thing to me personally. And so Peter's words in this text are very challenging. And if you remember with me back in chapter 3, there was a section that was challenging because of how Peter said things. In fact, I said to you, probably it's the most challenging thing in all of Scripture. I don't know if you remember that. Well, this challenge of this particular text is not quite the same challenge that I'm talking about here. This text is challenging because of what Peter says. 
not how he says it. His point is very simple, but it is also easier said than done. I, I told my wife this morning, I just I feel like I, I don't I'm not not representing this text well, and part of it is because it spends so much time speaking to elders, and I look at that and I go like, oh, we fail, fail miserably at some of these things. Uh, and I want to just say this up front, that this is a message that I'm preaching to myself and I'm preaching to our men uh, as we talk about what an elder is, but it's not just to elders, and this is what I want you to see. His point is very simple, but it's easier said than done. His point is this, shepherds must shepherd God's people. And probably all of you would nod your head and go, yes, that's true. But I would say also, God's people must be shepherded. And that is true as well. It is no accident that God has chosen us, chosen to call us sheep, Philip Keller writes. Philip Keller wrote a book, I think back in the 70s, um, a, a, a shepherd speaks Psalm 23. And so he writes, it's no accident that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Sheep do not just take care of themselves, as some might suppose. They require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. That's us, right? Isn't that true? You know, in your own marriage relationships, in your own relationships with your children, it takes meticulous work and endless care if we're going to get it right. Every layer of life for us is an urgent need of care, attention, and shepherding. So Peter writes to us in context of chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Remember what we just talked about last week. He simply lays out the reality of suffering in a sin-filled world. And he says it's going to happen. Don't be surprised. It will happen. And he's writing in the same context. This means then that as we walk through life in this spiritual suffering, pain is very real. Blindness enters our world. A numbing sensation to a life that agitates the heart. As we live in suffering, it frustrates us. And it makes for very difficult circumstances to walk through. Many of you have walked this week with a limp. Not real a limp, not really a limp, but spiritually you're like, I can't do this. And so he's talking to us and he's saying that means then that the hearts of God's people need to be shepherded. So we come here this morning desiring to be shepherded. Because the pain is real. So it's no surprise that Peter then addresses the elders. The word elders here is the most common word given to leaders in the church. It's this title of an office in the church. And it's used more than the word for pastor. I mean, the word pastor is used. It's often dealing with something that an elder does, like it is in our text here. Elders, shepherd. Elders, pastor. That's what they do. So some of you would say, well, then are you an elder? And I'd say, yes. Technically speaking, I'm, I'm simply an elder. But in our day and time, the title of pastor has come to mean a simple way of distinguishing the one who earns their living by doing the work of an elder. And it's my privilege. Uh, and Chaz, if he were here, he would say the same thing. It's our privilege that we get to put bread on our table each week because of the giving of you people. And it's a, it's a thrill to, to be that pastor. But when it comes to doing the work, we have here a group of elders, plural, that work together to do all that is necessary so that we can be shepherded. So Peter speaks plainly then to the men that God has placed among his people who were suffering, suffering pain. And he says, and notice the very first word of our chapter. So, or you could say, therefore, because of the suffering, because I know the pain that you're going through, hear me. Therefore, in other words, because dear people are suffering, elders, you will need to shepherd their hearts. People are hurting. If you've ever hurt through suffering, you'll know exactly what, we're, what he's talking about here. And then God's people, listen, you will need to be shepherded. You will need to listen 
to what the elders have to say about what God is doing. So the word here that he uses to explain this is the word exhort. You see that? He says, so I exhort the elders among you. That word exhort is the word that means the idea to come alongside. I get to come alongside you men and church people. And Peter coaches the elders, but I want you to notice he also brings in the youngers. There's the elders and the youngers. And then there's all of you. All right, do you see that? Three sections of people, and then he finally ends with, no, every one of you do this. So this text is not just for elders. This text is for all of us. So let's hear the instruction today. Let's hear these words from Peter. But notice, first of all, notice he gives his credentials. Notice Peter's credentials here. God has always had his messengers, and he always has a message for the people to hear. Credentials, then, can offer validity, and I can imagine that Peter dealt with a pretty consistent burn in his own heart that hearkened back to the night of Christ's crucifixion and his own denial of Christ. I mean, no doubt he then remembers Christ's own shepherding of his own heart after the resurrection where Peter experienced beautiful restoration in John chapter 21. What a beautiful picture that is. If you haven't read it lately, go back and read after Christ is resurrected from the dead, he comes back and he makes a beeline to Peter in order to restore this person. Three times Christ asked Peter if he loved him. Do you love me? And three times Peter was brought closer and closer to Christ, and the result was full restoration. By the way, this is the beauty of becoming a believer, putting your faith and trust in Jesus, that there's this place of full restoration only in him. Jesus said to him three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And no doubt, Peter rehearsed this over and over in his own soul. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. Over and over and over. And so here's Peter feeding us. Doing what he's told to do. Peter was Christ's first under-shepherd. And Peter was doing it. And so we should hear him. But notice his credentials. First of all, he says he's a fellow elder. Do you see this? I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Now what is interesting is, the first thing he doesn't say is, Hey, I just want you to know I'm an apostle. And I have my badge, my apostle badge. And I want you to hear what I'm saying. No, I, I love this. His humility is amazing. He identifies himself immediately with the church and says, I'm no one special. I'm just one of you guys. He's a fellow elder. He simply indicates he's doing what he is telling us to do. I'm shepherding you. Now you go and shepherd God's flock. It's a beautiful picture. But then he does dip into the reality of his apostleship, because he also is an apostle. And notice how he says this, though. He doesn't say, I am an apostle. What he does say is, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I'm a witness of the suffering of Christ. Here he's citing his own authority by which he speaks. He saw firsthand of the suffering of Christ. And there's some ambiguity here as to just exactly what it is that he means by this, but I think if you just take it frankly, what's here, you begin to understand that he actually saw Jesus walk through suffering in this life, and he knows that Jesus did it perfectly. He saw firsthand of the suffering of Christ. And you remember that Jesus warned Peter, but you also remember that Peter didn't hear Jesus. And Peter's heart was pierced that evening with Christ's words after he denied Christ. And Scripture says that he went out and wept bitterly. I think that was life-changing for Peter. And in many ways, Peter is proclaiming then the accuracy of Christ's words in his own heart and that he should have listened to the words of Christ. And so he's urging us by his own words and begging us to hear him. Peter is saying in so many words, don't do as I did by dismissing Christ's words, but hear his words now by listening to me. So he's an apostle. He comes with authority. But also, I love this, as he reaches out and includes every believer, that he is a fellow partaker of a future glory. 
And Peter, Peter really caught on to the spirit of all that Christ was doing. If you can, be, you can see this in the way he handles this. If you remember, Christ told his disciples that he would die. But he also told them that he would rise from the dead. And Peter saw this firsthand. I mean, he saw the empty tomb. And he saw then, after that, Jesus ascend into heaven. And so now he puts it all together and he says, we live and operate out of the understanding of a future glory. And it's as if he's saying, I know, I know it well because I personally have seen just a token of this glory and it's glorious and it just means that more is coming. I saw Jesus risen from the dead. I saw him ascend. And buddy, that is, that is motivating. But he says that's just a glimpse of something that greater that is going to happen. And so it's what's motivating him. Everything that Christ has done, every promise that he has given, has been to prepare us for a future glory yet to be revealed. And it's truly a basis of authority. But I will tell you, friend, it's also a basis of hope in the middle of suffering and in the middle of shepherding. My friend, listen to me. I have no hope to bring you if I don't understand that someday... This all is going to be absolutely true. And it's going to be far better than what you and I can ever imagine. My words are not sufficient to be able to describe to you why you should be living for Christ now. So as I paint this picture, as Peter paints this picture, we believe it by faith. And we don't shrug it off as it's not important. Oh my friend, this is, this is why we live life. This is why we get up in the morning. That there's this future glory, and we get to be a part of this. So those were his credentials. But then I want you to notice Peter's exhortation to three groups of people. We've kind of mentioned this already, but it starts off that his exhortation is to elders. Spends the vast majority of time dealing with elders, so this is what we will do today. Here's the heart, I think, of the first part of chapter 5. And he says this, elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So notice now he gets very specific. And I want you to notice three areas that he gets very specific on. First of all, what the elders should do. There's always an order to how God does things in his world. So he created the world with order and he expects his church to have order in it too. So notice a couple of ways in which the elders should shepherd the flock of God. First of all, notice that we acknowledge God's ownership. You say, how do you know that? Because it's the flock of God. Did you see that? You shepherd the flock of God. This is God's world. This is God's church. We are His people. We are under His divine rule, and as elders, we get to shepherd His flock. This makes us then stewards of something that really doesn't belong to us. I mean, this is, this, this is God's church. You, are, you, are, you belong to God. This building that we're in may have, in, in, in the title of it, it may have our names or, our, or Calvary Bible Church, but this is not the church. You are the church. You are the flock. And I always get a little bit nervous when I hear pastors talk about my church. That's not something that I will say. This isn't my church. It's God's church. But notice, elders are placed among the flock. Do you notice that? Notice what he says here. He says, I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness and as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So this is a beautiful thing that God has done here. God has allowed elders to be among the flock. But I think it becomes a very important situation here that he points out. Because the elders are people, have people that they have been put in charge of. Do you notice that? It's the idea here that he says the elders have the, the, these, these people that, that has, God has put into your allotment. It's the idea of an allotment that God has given elders as an assignment or as an allotment. And it's all God's doing. God is bright, he's building his church. God places elders and to those elders he gives people. I'm always surprised with whom God brings into the church, and then who God takes away from the church. Because this is His church. 
And elders, we play just a small role of taking care of the people that God gives. You are here because God placed you here. I just told the foundations class. You're here by God's design. Some of you think it was the design of Google. No? You're here because God has placed you here. God has directed you here. And by the way, you should be, you should be affirming that in your own heart. You should know what God wants for you because God owns you and He owns this place and He's the one who is behind it all. So we don't take this lightly and you shouldn't either. This is God's place. This is God's people and must be done in God's way. And it's all about Him and ultimately for His own glory. What is done must be for the glory demonstrating His multifaceted perfections for His own glory. So notice that. Notice, secondly, that the elders are to give oversight. Did you see this? He says this. I think it's verse, among you, exercising oversight. Yeah, it's verse 3. I think I put verse 2 on there. Yeah, it's verse 3. Giving oversight. Exercising oversight. This is the idea, oversight is to look upon or to keep watch. And many in our days have looked at this as a negative thing. I don't want anybody watching over me. That's that's weird. But the writer of Hebrews says it this way. I love this. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your soul. As those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So what he says here is watching over the souls of people and knowing that someday we will give an account for how we have given oversight. This is a very sobering yet urgent responsibility that he's placed upon elders. And I will tell you, as a group of men, we wrestle through a lot of stuff every month when we meet. We're wrestling what we will teach for family Bible class, how we will best utilize our calendar of meeting times, how we will best spend God's money, how we will help build caring relationships and use them to learn God's purposes in all of our lives, and how does His Word address us in life for all of us. So it means then that there are times of public or private instruction, that there are times of counseling, there are times of discipling, there are times of even confrontations, of warnings, of cautions given, organizing, planning, guidance, wisdom, and even disciplinary meetings, phone calls, texts, emails, and so much more that makes this service happen week after week. And all of this is what it means to give oversight. And some of us are better at it than others. That's the one part. The administration of it, I always feel like that's, that's this big black hole in my life. I have to try to administrate all of this. And if it wasn't for good men around me, that hole would be even bigger. All right. And some of you would say like, oh, but it seems like everything's so organized. I'm going like, yeah, that's what we want you to believe. But it's hard work, and it is a lot of effort that does that. That's part of the oversight. But it also means, at verse 3, that elders set the example. Being examples to the flock. This is the idea of setting a pace. And he uses this word from which we get the word type. Or literally typewriter. I recognize there's probably many of you that go like, what is that? What What do you mean, typewriter? Well, those of you that are not from my generation, it's the idea of something being shaped, and then as it strikes something, it leaves an imprint of that shape on it. Some of you remember doing that. I remember doing that. That thing would go up, and it would hit that, and there would be a P there. You'd go like, whoa, that's really cool. But that's the idea that he's getting here. It leaves an imprint. Well, what is Peter talking about? Well, he's saying, beloved fellow elders, this should be your great opportunity. It's not the degree of gifts that you have, but that somehow in your contact, as you rub shoulders with the flock, amongst the people that you serve, that they may be left, that somehow in your contact with the flock, that there may be left on them the imprint of the grace, goodness, love, and the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
In other words, as we rub against the shoulders of other people, we should leave impact of Christ in their lives. The elders set the pace then for a lot of areas. We set the pace in how to serve people. We set the pace in how to give back to God specifically, sacrificially, of our time, of our talents, of our finances, and even His presence in people's lives in general, how we serve people. Elders are examples. But I want to just say something here. We have in our world today this thought that elders somehow have to do this perfectly. And what I want to just remind you is that God has given elders differing gifts. And so just as you don't do everything everybody else does, elders don't have the same abilities to do what everybody else does. And so we feel our imperfections. I'll just tell you, I have this little argument with myself just about every Sunday. I have to stand and do something that I don't feel like I can do it very well. I'm I'm not qualified for this. Why? Because I know in my own heart, I know my own sinfulness. And I have to stand and say, thus saith the Lord, and do this with the idea that, 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 that I am representing the perfected works of Jesus Christ. And I'm such a failure at it in my own heart at times. The point then is not, can I do this perfectly? The point has to be, am I repenting of this? And I will tell you, oh, so many times. So many times I'm going like, God, you got the wrong person. I feel like Moses, like, I can't do this. But it's an opportunity for me to repent and turn from my own weakness and my own stumblings and my own fallings and let Christ fill me. And every elder lives this way. And so it's very, very important here as a pace setter, not perfect, but faithful men, believing and repenting. Once regenerated, always repenting. So here's the second thing. Not just what the elder should do, but literally he explains how it should be done. Do you see this? You see this in verses 2 through 4, or 3 through 3 and 4 in particular. God is always interested not just what we do, but he's interested in how we do it. What are the attitudes and heart motivations that go into serving the people of God? So he lists three, not this, but this sentences. Not this. But this, notice the first one, not under compulsion, but what? Willingly, right. Not under compulsion, but willingly. So no one likes a leader who's doing it because he feels merely compelled. Like, like it's the worst thing you can do. As these young people get married, these new, these new folks get married, and they go like, they get up in the morning and they go like, well, I guess I have to love you today. Like, that's just not going to happen. Why? Because they're, they're in love. And they'll give themselves to, the, to that way. Right, you guys? You're here, right? <laughs> they are here. Yeah. Did you have to get up this morning? Liam, did you say, I guess I have to love you today. I guess it's, I got I to practice this today, right? Is that what you did? No, no, no. You didn't. Of course not. What a beautiful thing. So glad to have you guys here. Not under compulsion. It's not like I have to do this. The idea of willingly here speaks to what is motivating the heart. The elder sees the need and wants to be included in what God is doing. And so he joyfully and willingly jumps in. This idea of willingly here is brought up here because there are times when the enemies of the gospel get to work. And the first person they usually go after tends to be those who are leaders in the flocks of Jesus Christ. When I was a kid, my pastor preached a message one time. I didn't remember all of his messages, but one time he says, shoot for the gold buttons. And it was a Civil War picture. And the ones who had gold buttons were the leaders in the battle. And so they said, don't shoot at anybody except the gold buttons. Take out the leaders. This is exactly kind of what he's talking about here. This willingly is brought up here because there are times when the enemy goes and he's going after the gold buttons. 
The warfare and constant harassment of the battle tends to make even the best leaders hesitant not to want to shepherd. Now where does the zeal for this kind of work come from? Peter, notice what he says here. He says this, notice in verse 3, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, according to the will of God. In other words, you're doing God's work. And what shapes this desire is our own view of God. Who is God in my life? And if we really believe that the greatest thing in our world is what God is doing, then we become motivated to answer the question, what is God doing in this situation and how can I be a part? We get to be a part of the most glorious work of all, and it's God's work. Now, honestly, there are days where that willingness wanes. But the point is that we remain willing. It usually doesn't last long because God shows His grace at work in other people's lives and other people's hearts, and I just sit there and go like, wow. It's beautiful. It's beautiful what took place yesterday with Linda and Liam. It's beautiful what's taking place today with Ben and Aaron and watch how God brings these two people together and then he brings them to to Columbus, Ohio and he brings them to sit down here in our church and we get to minister with grace to them. It's absolutely stunning and amazing. But God has brought you in that same way. This is what God is doing. And if you're not in tune with who God is and what God is doing, then guess what? You're probably not going to do an elder, uh, elder work very well. Because we get to be a part of what God is doing. So he says this first phrase is very clear. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Secondly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain is this idea of greed. Covetousness. Or to own a position before men. It's the idea of getting gain falsely. This is a common problem in the church. People like positions. They like to gain wealth or fina- uh, through finances or wealth of respect with peers through a position. So they become elders. And once again, God goes after the heart of the elder. What is driving him? And notice the elder should do what he does eagerly. No one should have to beg the elder to do their work. They should do it and do it eagerly but not looking for a position or something that will be granted to them. It's because they get to be a part of what God is doing. And then finally he says, not domineering, but examples. Pastors have been known to be bullies. There's a pride of knowledge that can creep into the work of a pastor that would often lead him to think that I have the answers And you should bow to me and get all of your answers from me. And what makes it difficult is that when an elder studies and puts their heart and minds to work in unpacking God's word, a certain arrogance can sneak in that suggests, first of all, that we know all there is to know on a certain topic. Or as as one who would give oversight, we will tell you what it is that you are to think. This is often what domineering and bullying can look like. One writer says this, quote, Any kind of autocratic, oppressive, and intimidating leadership with elements of demagoguery, traits that typically characterize leadership style and methodology of unregenerate men, is a perversion of the overseer's office. And it will kill a church. There's a careful way that an elder must maneuver in this. We must be clear what God says. But we must say what God says with great care and with great compassion. Truth isn't our truth. The truths of God are just a small part of His infinite wisdom that we will never get to the end of this side of eternity. And no matter how much we are sure of of what is in God's Word, we are not the owners and operators of His truth. We are stewards of it. 
So we have a deep respect for God and His Word, and we seek to be careful, but we also understand that we hold what we hold on to is only a glimpse of the fullness of God. So there is no place for bullying or domineering over people. And so we have to walk this fine line of saying, Thus saith the Lord, and really, thus saith the Lord, not thus saith Eric. One author really gave a good illustration of this, and I I, I have to give it to you. One author speaks of a time he was on a trip of Israel, and the tour guide had just finished explaining that the shepherds in the Near East don't drive their sheep from behind, but they lead their sheep from in front. We all know that. We've heard that. As they were going along in the bus, they came upon a bunch of sheep where a man was actually behind the sheep, beating the sheep forward. So someone said to the tour guide, what is it about this, this shepherd here leading the sheep? Look at this fellow. So the tour guide stopped the bus, jumped out, ran out to that man. He then came back into the bus with a smile on his face, and he said to the tour, that man is not the shepherd. That man's the butcher. That's how it can be, unfortunately, in the church. Real shepherds don't domineer or lord over people like a bully. The issue here is that elders have been given authority by Christ to give oversight, but it is a mediated authority and not a self-appointed authority. The truth is, from time to time, it's rare. I've been here, I'm in my starting, I, I'm, I'll be starting my 14th year here very soon. It's very rare for me to have to put on my authority hat and say, this is what God says, this is what we must do. But I enter that hall in a hallowed way. And it will be very, it will be, be a, what do they call it? A, a, a cold day in hell when someone has to say, would I, when I would have to say, as pastor of Calvary Bible Church, I'm saying this. Why? Because then it becomes a bully point. Rather than, I plead with you on the basis of God's word, please don't do this. That's a difference. It's a God-given authority. But it's with tender care, discerning love and devotion to Christ first. And then we do this in faith. Because we actually cannot move anybody, any direction. It's only God in us. And it's the word of God that does that. And then let us us see here why elders should do it. And he says in verse 4, You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, I struggled with this verse. I have to be honest with you. Um, I, I'm not sure that my conclusion is maybe your conclusion, but I, I want us to think about what this means. Because as you read many commentaries, we don't, they don't know what this means. They, they can say, well, you're going to get a, a crown. Well, if, even if you do a study on crowns, you realize oh, there's a lot of words for crowns in Scripture. Is this referring to some special reward for faithful elders? Most people say yes. But the truth is, shepherds don't usually wear crowns. So there's several words used in the New Testament for crown. There's the idea of the diadem. This is the associated largely in the ancient world with royalty, princes, and kings. There's a word that means a crown of victory, usually given to the victor in the games like the Olympics, or given to the triumphant general who's won the battle. That's the word that's used here. It seems to be associated with a particular deep red flower whose redness would never fade in the sun. That's the picture that he paints here. And I also think that most crowns, if not all of the other crowns mentioned in the New Testament, actually just refer to the reward of salvation itself. In fact, it is often troubling to me that what we've done with these crowns, we've sort of made them a special reward for our own work. But if you look carefully, it is awfully simply stating that there's a reward at the end, and it really is our salvation in a final and complete sense. And I think that's probably the idea here. In other words, be faithful. Why? Because salvation is coming. 
Don't fear persecution. Don't shrink from your responsibility. Don't lose your desire to serve in the midst of suffering. Keep your eyes on the end of the race and realize Jesus is coming. And when he comes, you who have been faithful in his work and have continued with Christ, you'll receive what he has promised. In other words, shepherd people in light of the end. In light of seeing your Savior. Live this way and shepherd this way. And here he states that elders submit themselves, their own selves, to the chief shepherd. Do you see that? It's beautiful. Notice this chief shepherd and the impact that it has. We're under shepherds. He's the chief shepherd. We get to live for him. And this brings us then to his powerful instruction in two short sentences um, to the rest of the people. Peter's exhortation to the young. Do you see this? This is what the elders, and now he's saying, you younger, be subject to your elders. He's turning his attention to the church, I think in general, so he uses the word likewise. Do you see that? Do you see that verse? He says, likewise, you young people, submit yourselves to the elders. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject. Just as the elders submit to the great shepherd, you submit to your elders. Question. Did God know these elders were imperfect? Did God know they had flaws? Did God understand that almost single-handedly these men almost messed up, at least humanly speaking, the work of God through their own impetuous spirit? I think yes, he did. God knew all of that. In fact, all through Scripture, it was typically the weak, the floundering leader by which God's work was accomplished, and I will tell you, it's still true today. So younger people ultimately trust Christ, your chief shepherd, but then submit yourself to the elders. Give yourself to the leadership of the church. And this indicates a heart that listens. Not blindly going along with the elders as if I don't know anything and I can't use my, my brain, but trust God and in that you be subject to the men that God has placed in front of you. And it's such a important part of God's design how God places and orders the church. And then he gives one last exhortation that is the blanket or the umbrella for all of this. And he says this, Peter's exhortation to all, this is to everyone, leadership and fellowship, wear the clothes of humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to, word, I want you to connect the word submission to humility. That's the heart for all of us. Humility means to adorn an apron, to think with lowliness of mind. And Peter may be speaking of the shepherd's garment that would be quickly identified in, in his world, that would identify someone as a shepherd, a very lowly position. Or he may even be thinking of the towel that Jesus used to wipe the disciples' feet. And he's saying, pick up that garment and be identified as humble, all of you. Wear clothes of humility. And it describes someone who willingly serves in the lowest places available. And my friend, I will tell you, there's such a lack of genuine humility in our world today. We are people who are self-appointed rulers of our own truth and of our own world that we do not want to submit to the, the, the imperfections of others. And ultimately, we're not trusting in God. I love what John Owen said. There are two things that are suited to humble the souls of men. A due consideration of God and then of ourselves. Of God in His greatness, glory, holiness, power, majesty, and authority. Of ourselves in our mean, abject, and sinful condition. Humility is content with the absence of earthly recognition because of the infinite superiority of the heavenly. 
You see, my friend, it's not hard to be humble to people who you think are truly more gifted than you, is it? People that are more richer than you or more popular than you. It's not, it's not difficult to humble yourself under those people. But think of the person. It's a real challenge to love people who you think are less than you. Think of that person in the church that you find difficult to talk to. You feel awkward around one who is intolerably difficult. And what Peter is saying is you wear humility to serve them. Our Savior never humbled himself before anyone who was superior to him. He did, however, humble himself before everyone that was inferior to him because everyone is inferior to him. There are very few things that are more beautiful than the fellowship of God's people where every member seeks to clothe themselves with humility, with respect to every other member. There's something absolutely beautiful about that. This is very rare. And can I just say that this humility that we're supposed to wear can identify itself best by simply doing the simple things. Like, for instance, signing up for the picnic next week. That's a simple thing, right? And we say, well, I just didn't get on realm. I I can't believe how realm has entered into our world, that crazy software that none of us like, and yet it dominates... (laughs) very few of us like, it dominates us to the point where we will just simply say, I'm just not going to use it. And there's a subtle thing that just simply says, I don't want to do this. And I know it's just just software, and it's a pain in the neck, trust me. I I, I would like to get a a whole other set of software, because I'm like... We have to start another one. Here we go. Oh, here we go again. I'm going like, no, 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 no. Please understand. But, but I think it's good for us because it humbles us. I'm not kidding. Every time I use it, I think, oh. And I go like, no, I need to. I, I need to. This, this, is, this world is not ultimate. This computer is not ultimate. Andrew Murray gives us three great motives that push us towards humility. We'll give this and we'll close. Three things that should help us in understanding how we wear humility. First of all, we are created beings. Let that set in. Let that be a part of how you think. You're created. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What you have, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Survey says... Everything. Everything you have is simply you have it because you received it. Right? Beautiful. You're created. We're the created. Secondly, humility befits our fallenness. It helps us understand where we really are. We're sinners. We're rebels. We're transgressors. We're worshipers of false gods. In fact, Paul recounts this If you want to look at it in Titus 3, he says, We ourselves were once transgressors, worshipers of false gods. We were disobedient. We were foolish. We were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Sounds like a party, right? Sounds like a lot of fun, right? That's what we once were. But in His grace, He's given us the realities of eternity and His righteousness. Titus 3.3. 3. And then thirdly, we're saved by grace. Every time you sing Amazing Grace, stop yourself to make sure that you're not just singing the words, but that you realize you have no business being saved. God doesn't owe you salvation. You turned your back on the greatness of His righteousness. And Titus 3, 5, not by works done by us in righteousness. Not by our own works are we saved. He set his love on this. Ephesians 2, 9, 
so that no one would boast. God knows us. Oh, he knows us. He knows that we would boast about it. So my friend, the answer to this humility question is found in Jesus alone. Without him, our pride will kill us. So rest in his humility. Read Philippians 2. Drink of that cup all the time. Watch his step downward to his exaltation. This is our Savior. This is our King. And he alone is our great hope. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for salvation in Christ. Oh, without him, truly, we are nothing. We are left to condemnation. We are left to hell. Eternity in hell. But because of his loving kindness, we can be clothed in this beautiful cloak of righteousness which comes with a covering of humility. So God, please, by your grace, let us live out this humility and love towards one another. In a few moments, Father, we will leave here and some of us will have shepherd groups. God, cause us to serve one another. Cause us to look away from ourselves and to give of ourselves just like Christ did for us in a very sacrificial, but in a way that that meets the needs. This is how you've designed things. God, I pray for our elders. I pray that you would continue to bring humility to us. I pray, Father, that you would continue to do whatever it takes to bring and to orchestrate your glory in, in us and through us. And Father, honestly, we sometimes don't know what that means. We, we, we don't know how to do it. We don't have the mechanics to, to make it happen. And so we rely on you to cause it to be because of Christ in us and us in Christ. And Father, we, all, we often know that it is through suffering that this work happens. And so, yes, Father, we are submitting ourselves to your design, even in suffering. And in that suffering, we rejoice because you show us your grace and your mercy. So be our God today. And Father, let us work as elders in a humble fashion, setting examples. Father, I pray that we would also be people as a church body, that in our humility we would clothe ourselves to serve one another with great joy for the glory of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And we do this only because of what he has done for us on our behalf. Amen.